Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. A few announcements before today's guests. I've updated my website to include several new requested functions. Supporters can now change, update, and cancel payments more easily. There's now a donate page so you can donate any amount on a one-time basis. All podcasts will have transcripts and soon they'll be translated into Spanish. By popular demand, we now have podcast merchandise that you can buy and you can now become a member on YouTube. In addition to the website updates, I'd like to announce a speaking event I'm hosting on September 29th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. The event will be exclusively for high school and university students. If you're associated with a high school or university, you can register for this event to have your students or classmates listen to me speak and then engage with me. Again, that's September 29th, and visit colemanhughes.org for more details. Okay, today my guests are James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian. James Lindsay is a mathematician, writer, and founder of New Discourses, and the author of a new book called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity. Peter Bogosian is a philosopher, a professor at Portland State University, and author of A Manual for Creating Atheists and How to Have Impossible Conversations. We talk about critical theory, postmodernism, critical race theory, and how these conspire to build the foundation of social justice ideology as we know it today. We talk about the ways in which social justice has departed from its parent ideologies, and much more. I really enjoyed this one, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian. Okay, thank you, James and Peter, for coming on my podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So let's, I think a lot of people will have heard of you either through the Sokol Squared hoax from a few years back, uh, from being on Rogan related to that hoax, or from both of you have several books about, you have a math background, James, and you have a philosophy background, Peter. So I want, can you tell me how you guys met and how you guys sort of started collaborating and how you got in the same circle? Twitter. Really? Yeah, it turns out we met on Twitter. I mean, I don't know the exact, how much influence this had, but I know when I started following Peter is that I was complaining about my, my favorite hobby horse in philosophy to complain about on Twitter, which is moral philosophy. And then even in getting into, um, some aspects of ontology. I know we don't have to get too deep into any of this. And somebody came to me, I think this would have been like 2013, that was a long time ago, and said, if you uh, don't like philosophers that dawdle around in ontology, you need to follow Peter Bogosian. He's probably the leading philosopher who's not into the whole metaphysics thing. Mm. And so I followed Peter, and Peter follows like 10 people on Twitter, so he didn't follow me back for a long time. And then he finally ended up reading something I think that I had written about Sam Harris 
I responded to some yeah. of Sam's arguments, but I also defended Sam against weird accusations, which tap into this woke stuff to some degree. And Peter was impressed with my writing and, and sent me a note of appreciation and followed me. I got the infamous Peter Bogosian tweet followed. <laughs> and, and so that was, I think, in 2013. Um, and then we started to talk a little bit and he wanted me to and it, read. Yeah, and I, I had, a, I had a, a question from my book and then I called you on the phone. I'm like, dude, what, you know, help me out with this. And uh, I yeah, the Drake what, equation. It was the Drake uh, equation. Yeah. Oh, is that right? That's where it was, right? Yeah. 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 I didn't expect to start here, but I'm curious, what were your objections to ontology and metaphysics? And I feel like I might kind of share them having just finished my philosophy degree and having taken... Peter's phrase at the time, and I think he would still stand by it, we'll let him confirm, was metaphysics just say no. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's that if you're coming at philosophy from a perspective where empiricism means anything, metaphysics is right outside of that realm. And so what often happens is that you end up with philosophers, if you want my particular critique of it, who get bogged down in arguing about the ontology of various ideas. They want to say, oh, do mathematical objects exist? In what way do they exist? What does that existence mean? And our our friend Daniel Dennett wrote a very important, I think, but not well-read piece in philosophy about something he called chmess like chess with an M added into it to indicate that people like to kind of play in these other worlds um, that don't really connect to reality. And his point was that that's interesting, but it produces work of no abiding significance. I I have a very kind of complicated view of metaphysics and what metaphysics role should be, but I don't particularly find those questions to be interesting beyond an academic level. And it gets annoying. For example, you know, I was speaking with the president of the Southern Baptist Convention earlier today on a podcast, and he wanted to know how I ground my morals objectively as somebody who is an atheist. And I've been asked many times, like, well, if you're an atheist, how do you have logic if you can't ground the idea of logic in the logos and in, you know, the body of Christ or whatever. And it's like, what are you talking about? Just what are you talking about? (laughs) How is this helping anything? And so it feels to me that it it generates a lot of very tangential um, conversations that are not particularly necessary. It does, by the way, relate to what we, I think we'll talk about if we talk about wokeness, because they have their own metaphysic that people have not yet really cleanly pinned down. And I'm working on that now, try to understand what it is. But I think it's like, it's a way, it's intellectual masturbation for the most part. It's vaguely interesting, but a distraction from more meaningful and important questions, especially in philosophy, which should be guiding us into how to live a reflective, thoughtful, informed life. Yeah. And part of the problem, Coleman, is that I see people have oversubscribed, subscribed certainty, and they've made these, I don't know, apodictic pronouncements about what they consider to be veridical propositions. Oh my God, that sounded so academic. I didn't mean to sound like that. But uh, so basically they've over-ascribed certainty to propositions about the world. And the way to know and understand those things is not through abstract speculation. It's through science, through evidence. Mm. You can't reason your way to certain empirical propositions. I mean, you people try it in theoretical physics, and then they look for empirical confirmation of that. I had a great conversation with my friend Lawrence Cross about how that's accomplished. But the concern that that I had was that we're teaching people things. You know, what, what is the ultimate nature of the, the universe or, or what have you? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just a bad question. Just putting a question word in front of a bun- bunch of other words doesn't make it a legitimate question. And, and Jim was absolutely correct. One of the most underappreciated pieces in all of philosophy is Daniel Dennett's piece, Chemesson. It'd be great if you could link that in the 
YouTube section. And Jim and I have published something in Russell Blackbridge, The Problem of Philosophy. And I think that's a very important idea that you, you want to pursue, philosophy ought to pursue questions of abiding significance. And too many people just trying to think of a less vulgar way to say it, I can't, but just intellectually masturbate around mm-hmm. ideas that are completely untethered to reality. And the answers, it's like a what Gilbert Ryle calls a category mistake. People are looking at philosophy to solve questions that is best solved through science. People have done that through, relig- through religion too, but it's in a sense, it's less excusable in philosophy. Uh, yeah, as, as you will probably have noticed, unfortunately, I've had this two plus two math debacle all summer. And somebody yeah. just on Twitter to kind of put a punctuation mark on this. I don't know if this person's significant. They're probably a grad student in philosophy or something. It's usually what they work out to be. But he said that I don't even know if one plus one can equal two because I don't know if there are any identical objects in the world that you could possibly <laughs> add together. And it's like all you're doing is confusing yourself at that point. It's you're, right, you're right. just like, well, you know, this apple and that apple aren't identical. No, but the category apple is so right. um, mm. sorry, it works. And, and in fact, you can get into the physics of things, but certain elementary particles are in fact all identical. So the claim isn't even true, but he's confused himself by digging into the ontology of the mathematical right. object one. And Jim, just imagine whole, there are whole disciplines like that that have hoodwinked people. Just imagine that. How crazy is that? We've institutionalized these disciplines, fields of study. They have bogus scholarship. People are pointing to those when you ask them how they know something. They're grossly overinflating their confidence in propositions about the world, but that's buttressed by bogus fields of study. So that's our problem with ontology. Yeah, no, I I remember distinctly feeling that when I took my metaphysics class, probably junior year, there was something very fun and very trivial about the whole thing. Like I felt like I was doing mind puzzles that were interesting as like a kind of logic game. I would play with my friends just as a joke. It sort of reminded me of that YouTube video where this guy asks, is water wet? And just goes through all of the arguments and counter arguments. And it's really fun. And it got like millions of views. But a lot of the questions we were dealing with in metaphysics and ontology had that character where it seems like there's really nowhere to stand where there's an objectively true answer here and it's all trivial and it was really unlike symbolic logic or or ethics or or any of the other classes i took in that in that vein so i got to check out that dennett essay um but that's not where i wanted to start uh, or that's not the main thing I, I hope to discuss here really what i want to talk to you guys about is Basically, your book, James, uh, which which you wrote with Helen Pluckrose, and you know Peter, you've been talking about you know all these same themes. So I, I almost feel like you're somehow a third author on the book, even though you're technically not. <laughs> um, okay, so that just a, just a quick comment on that, if I may. So that book is cynical theories, and I think it's a, not only is it a masterpiece; it's really is a Rosetta Stone to help people understand things. And it, I'll let. Jim speak to the details, but Jim and I wrote another book together at the same time we were doing the grievance studies, how to have impossible conversations. Mm-hmm. And that is a solution. We're not claiming it's the solution to the current moral panic and quagmire. So I think that those books go very well together, James and Helen's book and my book with James, because one one offers, well, the cynical theories offers a solution based in liberalism and how to have impossible conversations goes back to those values of how to speak to people, how to engage conversations and ideas. Yeah. Uh, so where I want to start is 
with postmodernism and critical theory. What do these two terms mean, and how do they differ? Okay, so they are two distinct or mostly distinct schools of thought. They both can be traced to having roots in Marxist thought, but it would be incorrect to call either of them Marxist as they were both um, extraordinarily critical of Marxism in particular. They're also quite different from one another. It's a useful kind of earmark to say that the critical theory is neo-Marxist, meaning that it changed Marxism to some new form, whereas uh, postmodernism is post-Marxist, where it had kind of abandoned all hope in Marxism. And so there's, that gives you a sense immediately of their flavors. So critical theory arose in the 1920s going into the 1930s, where it was outlined by a number of communist thinkers who noticed that the communist revolutions that had been predicted were not taking place. They were particularly not taking place in uh, the places where you would expect them to, which given Karl Marx, you would expect them to be Germany, would expect them to be London, which was the most industrialized city in the world at the time. And neither place was anywhere close to having a communist revolution. And they, they just weren't, the whole idea is they weren't sticking. And so this school of thought arose to try to explain why that wasn't happening. And so it started to draw off of the new fields of sociology and psychology, particularly Max Weber and um, Sigmund Freud. And tried to, with Sigmund Freud, actually, they explicitly intended to try to figure out how to take Freudian psychoanalysis and import it into Marxian theory to explain inside people's heads why they were not having a class consciousness and would not overturn the capitalist society and, and initiate the process toward the communist utopia. And what they concluded was that the elites in society, whether they're the bourgeoisie or the capitalists more specifically within, um, they were creating an ideology of how society should be. And in particular, following the one communist thinker or the Italian thinker, um, Antonio Gramsci, he pointed out that the, the, the kind of institutions that produce culture in society are responsible for making people content with their lives. So critical theory became a way to try to understand how the correct place of analysis that Marx missed was not economics, but rather culture. And so they started to look at how the elites in society produce culture. They produce mass culture. They produce popular culture. They, they produce a middle class that tries to keep people happy and out of that consciousness that would lead them to want to overthrow. They're happy with their lives and they shouldn't be more or less. And they, so they, they aren't going to overthrow society. So they separated the world into two classes of, of thought, traditional theories that seek to understand the world. This, of course, follows Marx's one of his most famous pronouncements, traditional theories that seek to understand the world and critical theories that seek to change it. And the point of a critical theory has, has three characteristics, according to Max Horkheimer, who wrote it down at first in 1937. Uh, a critical theory must understand how the current system falls short. Um, it must have an overarching uh, normative value system against which it compares, and it must advocate for social activism in, uh, in those terms. So that's what a critical theory is. A critical theory is, in other words, a way to bring problematizing, saying that uh, ideas might be true, but their truth creates problems in society, and so we have to now rethink them. Postmodernism is a much more pessimistic reaction to the failures of Marxism that arose in the 1960s, uh, going into the 1970s. And its big picture idea is that all of knowledge is socially constructed. 
Uh, everything we know is tied up in language, and that language is decided upon the, the proper uses of language, I should say, and of what we claim to be true and false and knowledge and not knowledge are tied up in the powerful groups and interests in society who get to decide that. And part of the way that they do so is with their bias, and part of the way that they do so is with the intention of excluding other ways of knowing that would threaten their cultural hegemony. So these two schools of thought were running in parallel. Uh, by the time that postmodernism started to, to flare up academically in the 60s and 70s, critical theory was flaring up in violent protests in the 1960s across Europe and the United States, especially 1968 being the most famous, obviously, which followed directly, I think is a fair thing to say, from the agitations of the neo-Marxist thinker Herbert Marcuse, who um, had written at that point Repressive Tolerance in 1965 and had written One Dimensional Man, in which he directly said, we need to bring together the outsiders, the racial minorities, and the leftist radical intelligentsia to form a movement. And in fact, the outsiders referred to um, radicals who wanted to do the same kinds of things we're seeing in 2020 out in the streets. Exactly. So that's the two schools of thought. Uh, postmodernism is objective truth is not possible and all claims upon it are politics. Critical theory is the world is split into oppressor versus oppressed, and the people who are on the right side of history are seeking liberation from that systemic oppression that's maintained by hegemony of culture by the powerful in society. Yeah, so on their face, those two seem to be in tension because postmodernism rejects the idea that any meta narrative is true. And an example of a meta narrative would be something like Christianity or Marxism exactly. or liberalism any of these sort of big systems of understanding the world, where critical theory at least seems to be itself a kind of meta-narrative. Yes. You talk about in the book sort of, you know, people want to act, and insofar as they have some postmodernist baggage, they have to reconcile their desire to act with the postmodernist skepticism of everything. So can you talk a little bit about how that gets reconciled? Yeah, it's very important to understand that critical theory in the formal sense, the so-called Frankfurt School, um, which would be all of these names that I mentioned, you know, we have, uh, well, we don't have to name them all again. Um, they definitely were in the modernist frame. They were definitely concerned with truth. They were definitely concerned with falsity. They were just saying that those aren't enough. We need to add another layer of analysis that adds in liberation as a concept. And they were very clear that emancipation and liberation and liberation were the ideas that and, and what you're being emancipated or liberated from is these systems of oppression that are created by the hegemonic cultural powers in society. And so the postmodernists would have generally rejected this and there is a tension there. But what happened is in the 1980s, and we could draw the lines from people like Herbert Marcuse if we wanted through Angela Davis, one of his mentees, at, I think UC Davis, you see something anyway. Um, Angela Davis is obviously even active today. She's very prominent. She's being profiled in, in popular publications like Vanity Fair and things. I think I saw just the other day mm -hmm. with her. And she was one of Marcuse's, Marcuse's students. She said that Marcuse radicalized her, as a matter of fact. And she went on to inform much of what was happening in Black feminism. Meanwhile, feminism in general was picking up postmodernism so they could break down the idea of gender as a social construct. And right. so all of a sudden you have these two ideas kind of in the same area. And in the 80s, mostly getting toward the late 80s, you started to have these discussions from a variety of different people, Mary Poovey within feminism, for example, Bell Hooks and Kimberly Crenshaw within the 
kind of black feminism going into critical race theory analysis. And what they were saying is that postmodern tools are very useful for breaking down to deconstruct, in fact, the, the fundamentals of systemic power, which was that critical objective. But they go too far. And I think the key observation is that at some point, these black feminists hit upon the idea And I want to stress for everybody, if they don't know, black feminism is a school of thought. I'm not referring to feminists who happen to be black. It's a different thing. It is a particular school of thought. Uh, They hit upon the idea that you, when you have the experience of systemic oppression, say by racism, you could only possibly deconstruct a concept like race that's a site of systemic oppression if you have the privilege to think that that doesn't matter. And so all of a sudden, the, the original postmodernists became privileged white guys. And that was, you know, why they were blind to this level of this critical level of analysis. And they kind of shoehorned the things together by saying the one thing that cannot be deconstructed. And in, in some sense, then the one thing that's objectively real mm. is this oppressor versus oppressed paradigm, mm-hmm. wherein various types of identity create or are sites of systemic oppression. That must be set aside from deconstruction. And then what deconstruction is properly used for is to deconstruct the roots of the systemic power, to take apart the systems of power themselves, but not everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where you end up getting this fusion that in the book we call applied postmodernism. Yeah. And that's a really important point that I want to highlight because you talk about how the, I guess you could call them classical or high postmodernists, the the people who were recast as privileged white men. I'm thinking of someone like Foucault. He explicitly, yeah. Yeah. Like had a kind of ironic distance from everything as a, as a mode of engaging with ideas. Everything was just a construct whiteness, blackness, you know, all, all, not that he used these words, but the, the crucial difference between someone like him and someone who inherited parts of his philosophy and critical race theory is that blackness becomes, becomes something very real and concrete and not liable to the kind of cynical distance that used to deconstruct what is viewed as the people on top of, of the system. That's right. I have a, an analogy in my head that I think encapsulates what what postmodernism tries to do. And I, I want to know if you think this is accurate. I remember being a kid and first learning, you know, hearing people speak different, speak English and sound different and learning the word accent as, as something that meant, oh, well, you know, my aunt has a Puerto Rican accent, right? And I didn't yet realize that I also had an accent. I just spoke and everyone else had an accent. So there was a kind of a, an other, an othering, you, you could say. And then at some point I had the aha moment that actually there is no objective center from which to view other people as having an accent. An accent is just a word for how you speak. And it equally applies to someone like me, who I think of having a mainstream American accent as it does to anyone else. So that aha moment, I think, is what postmodernism tries to replicate in every sphere of life, even, I would argue, in places where it doesn't belong. Does that make sense to you as an analogy? Not only does it make sense, I would say that's exactly what it does. And it is exactly the thing that it does wrong when you say that it takes that and applies it in places where it doesn't apply. It tries to find that aha moment and apply it to literally everything, including knowledge, for example. 
so the, the view that knowledge then becomes like an accent. It's just something that people with certain cultural values value as knowledge. It, yeah, and I'll, is I'll a, add to that. I'll add to that and say not just knowledge, but epistemology and epistemological processes. Yeah, everything, the whole thing. They see it all as a, as a political process. C- can you define that for people, epistemology? Uh, epistemology is just how you know the nature of knowledge, the study of knowledge, and the idea that there are different ways of knowing. And we can talk about standpoint epistemology if you want, but the scientific method is, on this view, just a way of knowledge. We, we haven't talked about relativism yet, but we should probably get into that. So epistemological relativism, epistemology. So there is no God's eye view, no view outside the system of one way of knowing. Everything is situated and everything is linked to individuals and cultural situations. I remember, you know, being in a, in a gender studies class. I'm sorry. When, <laughs> when I was uh, a sophomore, a friend of mine convinced me to do it. Um, and I'm glad I did in retrospect, but it was, it was quite bad. And we read, we read Foucault. I think, history of sexuality. And this was one of those classrooms where, you know, it it was actually the strangest classroom I was ever in at Columbia because no one would almost ever ask the the professor questions, right? There would maybe be one or two questions per class. And, And we were dealing with some heavy ideas, regardless of whether you agreed or not. Right. Like the whereas in all my other philosophy classes, there would always be, you know, pesky students like myself trying to bring up objections and like lively discussion. But this one, it was it was dead. It was a dead classroom. And we read Foucault. And, you know, I I remember bringing up the point because I think I had recently read Thomas Nagel's uh, book. You from nowhere. The last word, actually, where he one of the points he makes is that you know, postmodern skepticism of objective truth inevitably bites its own tail because if nothing is objectively true, then how do, you know, how do you know postmodernism itself is objectively true? And I brought up this point. uh, First, I want to know, is that a good critique of postmodernism, do you think? And, you know, I just remember that the professor giving some very hand-waving answer. Oh, Foucault sorts that stuff out. Huh. Well, it Just depends. Kinda... Is it good? It depends on who you ask, right. uh, and not in a cheeky way. Because if you ask a postmodernist, they would say that it misses the point entirely. Mm. Um, and the postmodernism deals with this simply by by acknowledging that it doesn't believe that it's objectively true. It believes that nothing's objectively true, and so that right. it must be self skeptical, radically self skeptical, also. And that's where you see it, you know, kind of devolving into Derrida's play, and and, exactly. and so on like that. Which, of course later generations discovered wasn't that useful for activism. Um, you can't really do anything with, with something mm. that, right. I mean, even Judith Butler wrote that it, it would be, she didn't consider herself a postmodernist because it would be inappropriate even to take that label or even to give that label meaning. It would be anti-postmodern to define postmodernism. And so, so but if you ask somebody from outside of it, um, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty good criticism of it. <laughs> so let me, let me jump in there. And, and that was Habermas's, Jürgen Habermas is the German philosopher's critique of Derrida mm. and that it's a performative contradiction. You're using rationality to undermine the tools of rationality. That idea has a, an ancient pedigree in the literature. You, you see that in the Platonic dialogue. You see that in 
littered throughout the history of Western intellectual thought, but it's an old, old idea, but it doesn't seem to bother to people. If you don't subscribe to the rules of reason and logic, then the criticism that you don't subscribe to the rules of reason and logic only works if you subscribe to the rules of reason and logic. Mm, so right. I think Jim's absolutely correct. They just, they just hand wave it off. And so that actually, by the way, highlights the tension in case any of your listeners don't realize Habermas is the last really of the critical theorists. He was the last member really of the Frankfurt School in any significant way. And of course, this is post Marcusa, post the riots of right. the, the 1960s, post Marcusa going on television in the 1970s and yelling about how anti-intellectual his movement had become. And so he had a much you know, more tempered and reasonable view of um, the critical approach. But more importantly, as you see, he had this rather vigorous or vicious critique of Derrida, which indicates that there yeah. was, in fact, tension between the critical theory approach, which was ultimately modernist, and the postmodernist approach, as you, as you pointed out. So I want to, if it's okay, Coleman, I, I want to linger on that for a minute. I think it's important for listeners to understand one of the objectives, and I just finished Kendry's book, and I, I'm, I see this scattered throughout the literature, is to remove the tools by which one makes discerning judgments about things. This comes up a little bit in cynical theories, but when you remove the tools, scientific rationality, epistemic adequacy, consistency, then it becomes impossible to make, to kind of step outside of a system and adjudicate competing claims. It, it becomes impossible to do that. And this is really the overarching goal is to remove the ability to make judgments, particularly epistemological and moral, moral judgments. And it's utterly terrifying consequences of, of that. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about the relationship between postmodernism and what I guess is variously called so social justice, wokeism, whatever, far leftism, whatever it's known as, that's either pejorative or just descriptive, depending on where you're situated. How is what we like what I encountered and have spoken about on this podcast a lot at Columbia, uh, you know, tied to the ideas of postmodernism and critical theory? And in what ways is it different? Sure. So the thing that we refer to maybe as the social justice movement now or critical social justice, if we follow Robin D'Angelo's very clear exposition of it in her, her book that she co-authored with Oslam Sensoy called Is Everyone Really Equal? Uh, what we see is actually the fusion of three lines of thought, three schools of thought. Postmodernism and critical theory we've already discussed to some degree, so we know what they are. The third is the social justice idea, which can be expressed in a number of contexts. It arose from Jesuit priests, uh, so it arose in a religious context. It was actually probably most thoroughly developed in the earliest part of the 1900s by um, Walter Rauschenbusch, who was a Baptist minister, uh, Baptist minister who happened to also be the grandfather of uh, Richard Rorty, the American half-postmodern philosopher. Um, Rauschenbusch came up, he was in Hell's Kitchen in New York City and was very interested in social welfare issues. And he came up with six principles, arguable that he found those principles when he went to London for a year or two and uh, studied with the Fabian Society there, which is a socialist think tank of a kind or society is the right word. I don't think they really had think tanks operating, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. 
But anyway, he spent a couple of years with the Fabian Society, came back and then wrote down this idea called the social gospel. Many of the ideas of social justice were already embedded within the, the broad idea of liberalism, the statement at the very beginning of the Constitution, the very beginning of the um, Declaration of Independence all point to that, that there's this liberalizing, equalizing notion of bringing people to uh, levels of equality. You see it when, in particular, I, I, love, I loved it on the 4th of July this year. They promoted um, Frederick Douglass's wonderful speech, I think, from 1852 or three. Uh, obviously slavery was still going on. And he talks about very clearly living up to the vision of the founders of of the country, very clearly living up to the constitution and then the hypocrisy and failures of our nation to do that by that point, um, which was instrumental, I think, in the ensuing 10 years into achieving abolition. So there's this principle of social justice built into our, the fabric of liberal societies as well, uh, which painfully and slowly seems to, to bear fruit, um, not always in, in comfortable or pretty ways, unfortunately, although I think it, it's arguable that we're getting better at it uh, as time has gone on. For example, if you consider how difficult the civil rights movement was for, for Black Americans in the 1960s against how, not to say it was all easy, but if you compare that against the, the gay movement of the 1990s, it was a much smoother ride uh, mm. the second time around. We have a better sense of social justice. Mm. Clearly, this was developed by liberal philosophers like John Rawls uh, with his veil of ignorance thought experiment. And so we have this whole line of thought about making society more fair and more just that can be analyzed in a number of ways. One of those ways is through critical theory. So the liberationist paradigm, we saw this very clearly in the civil rights movement in the 60s, where you had the black power aspect up against the, I guess, Martin Luther King or universal liberal aspect in tension with one another as the state representative from Memphis went viral on the Twitter yesterday for his speech. He was talking about being involved in the Memphis civil rights movement as a child. And when the riots would break out, he said his father would grab him by the arm and walk him away. And this is not our movement. This is not how we're going to be. We're about peace. We're about equality. We're about, uh, what did he say? Civility and dignity and class. He kept saying Mm -hmm. class. We're classy. We're classy. Mm -hmm. It's a very different thing than this very critical, radical, um, you have your power, we have our power you know, conflict theory approach. But you can approach the concept of social justice, which is increasing fairness and equality and decreasing discrimination and disenfranchisement in society through critical means, if you want. So there's a critical theory school of social justice that has taken up these ideas. And then what happened, so now that's where you see the fusion of those two. And then what happened is in the, the 90s, they picked up those postmodern tools as a right. means of deconstructing uh, the systems of power and the foundations of that which exactly. produces, exactly. maintains, and legitimizes power. Mm-hmm. So that's how they came together to form the present social justice movement that you would have experienced at Columbia, which we originally had just called applied postmodernism, but in, in cynical theories we outlined had actually reified itself by around 2010 into something very, very meta narrative based, very. Um, very rigid and doctrinal, very uh, almost dogmatic, if not religious. And it, we call it reified postmodernism, which is a nerdy way to put it, but a, a simpler way to put it would be woke, which means right. generally being aware that society is constructed out of systems of power and that those are somehow maintained by language and representation and symbology and art, and that the means of cultural production in those, those domains have to be challenged, disrupted, dismantled, taken over, replaced. Uh, by different means. And so exactly. this is, this is when, really what when, we see happening here. 
Yeah, I was right. when when one grokks that, that's the most cogent explanation for what we see happening. Now that's the grounding for what we see happening and playing out all around us right now. If you want a kind of concrete example, you can look at the origin of critical race theory specifically with Derek Bell at Harvard Law. Uh, he's credited with being the founder of critical race theory along with his student, Kimberly Crenshaw. So they together are the founders of critical race theory. Now, Derek Bell, if you read Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, if you read Kimberly Crenshaw, have very distinct styles and approaches. And the difference is actually postmodernism. They're both very critical of liberalism. They're both, I think, very pessimistic in their analysis of liberalism, if not cynical. But nevertheless, Derek Bell was a materialist in his approach. He's, he's very clearly interested in law. He's very clearly interested in institutions and the direct effects of law. And obviously, Kimberly Crenshaw talks about law as well with her intersectionality. You know, she's talking about this coming out of these cases, I think, at General Motors, and it's possible to discriminate against Black women while not discriminating against Blacks or women as broader categories. And this is a legitimate, I mean, I think it's one of the most interesting and powerful and important discoveries in discrimination law, mm-hmm. period. Agreed. But unfortunately, she went on. Insight. It was. And then a couple of years later, she writes this other paper mapping the margins and decides to recast the entire thing in terms of a modified version of postmodernism that takes up with Black liberationist politics, which she explicitly says this. That's what the margins are. Black liberationism pushes Black women to the margins. Radical feminism, which is a white feminist approach, pushes Black women to the margins. And so the intersectional Black feminism needs to be raised up out of the margins and mapped out. Mapping the margins is the title of the paper. Yeah. Yeah. And so when she's discussing the failure of postmodernism, she talks about specifically that it deconstructs the idea of race. And it misses the idea that that's a very important concept. And she has this very, very clear paragraph where she says there's a fundamental difference between I am black and I am a person who happens to be black. And her criticism of I am a person who happens to be black is that it forwards person in a universal sense instead of the identity group. Mm -hmm. And then she says that intersectionality is a provisional concept linking um, contemporary politics, meaning identity politics, radical identity politics to postmodern theory. And yeah, right. That's like clear. almost a di- direct quote, right? That is, I yeah. Was, I was kind of my, floored by that quote, actually. I had never seen that before. I remember reading the paper the first time while we were doing the Grievance Studies Affair. And I thought, you know, what in the heck is this? I'm reading it. And then I got to that sentence and I was like, whoa, something here changed. And in cynical theories, you know, there's this line where we say this little insight was about to change the world. In fact, I don't. I wish I could remember how I wrote the sentence the first time because we had this huge. Helen and I had this huge argument about whether or not I was way too mean about it because mm-hmm. <laughs> I really was. I was really sassy about it, and we we turned it down to something you know understated and, and plain. But it really did. This combination of those ideas, social justice infused critical theory, combined with postmodern tools in that particular way that forwards identity and removes right. the the view of universal humanity and even individualism, was a very profound shift in thinking. And of course, right. it caught fire like crazy uh, within all the relevant corners of the world, because um, meaning all these radical academics, because now they had tools to problematize each other, <laughs> which right. is like their thing they're afraid of most is being problematized. And so all the feminists are, are like, ah, we're racists now. And all of the black liberation scholars are like, ah, we're sexists now. And then all, everybody hates queer people. And, ah, you know, they're all melting down, attacking each other, which is like their favorite thing to do. And it just 
consumed the entire intelligentsia radical left, as Marcusa phrased it, in a very short period of time to where by 2002, three, four, you're seeing papers like we, a last defense of materialist feminism, we still need this, um, you know, and then uh, papers coming out saying um, there has been a shift. Everybody's just saying that this is just how we think about this stuff now. We think about this stuff intersectionally now. You have papers coming out. So that's saying as early can't. as the early 2000s, you're saying? Yeah, by 2004, the, I think it was the nail was in the coffin. Yeah, the last well, nail. And this is at a time when if you're not in academia, there's probably a 0% chance you've heard the word intersectionality, right? Correct. Correct. Whereas today in the culture, if you're just, if you're online enough, you don't have to be anywhere near a university to, to hear this word and to be influenced by it, right? That's right. And in fact, Kimberly Crenshaw is herself complained about that. She's, yeah. we, we put this in Cynical Theories, is that she feels like it escaped her original intentions. Mm-hmm. It is memified and it's taken on a life of its own, but she still pushes it just as hard. And um, I don't think she even works very hard to reclaim its true commitments uh, if, as, as she saw them, which is a, a very odd thing to say that it's now gotten out of her control, but she's not really going to do anything about it. Um, but yeah, it's taken on a life of its own and, and memefied and is now to the point where the intersections are are just bizarre and uh, every conceivable right. level and people obsess about their positionality. So that means obsessing right. about their identity and its relationship to power to the point where, I mean, the navel gazing for a young person in particular could be astonishing. Like you could spend just days and days and days and days, you go on Tumblr, discover this stuff, and all of a sudden spend days and days and days trying to think of every unique identity you have and how it, mm-hmm. it's like Dungeons and Dragons, you know, world building, but around your own identity all of a sudden. Yeah, th- this is one of those things where I think if I hadn't experienced it firsthand in high school, which is to say I was one of those people on Tumblr, you know, at 15 with my friends, seeing these ideas for the first time, being, you know, a mixture of uh, fascinated by them and skeptical of them and, you know, just and, and if I hadn't seen people and hadn't myself done the thing that you just described, which is noting that I'm a man, but I'm black. So, you know, in some sense, this cancels out on in, in my position on the intersectional sort of hierarchy. And, you know, it, it would seem if I didn't have that firsthand experience that you're just sort of making it up, you know, like if, if you're away from this stuff, it sounds too crazy to be true. But I can just, you know, especially having gone to Columbia and especially Barnard, intersectionality is more than an ideology. In fact, you know, uh, probably most people who are deeply embedded in the intersectional subculture, I would call it at this point, uh, don't, don't, couldn't necessarily tell you about Kimberly Crenshaw's initial paper and, and what she really meant by it. But it's become a, a social subculture. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kimberly Crenshaw actually describes it from the beginning as a practice not a theory, mm-hmm. not uh, as a practice. And so as a practice, it can defi- come to define a subculture that engages in that practice and defines themselves by their engagement with that practice. Yeah, I want to throw you a curveball real quick, though, since you were on Tumblr and we're talking about deconstructing our identities. Because this happened to me. Because I wasn't on Tumblr, but my kids were. And then I was like, gotta go find out what this is and so then all of a sudden i i remember do you remember maybe you maybe this is about to be your moment but i bet you it's not did you have a moment where you discovered other kin for the first time do you know what other kin are yeah like is like people who call themselves animals yeah 
I don't, I can't say I recall discovering other kin on Tumblr. Man, I, I remember when I found that and it was yeah. like days of my whole, my whole life, like for days, I could do nothing but think <laughs> about the fact that some people define themselves as dragons and like dress up as wolves and go out and act. And they say they run in packs. I was like, what the heck is this? And the truth is, is it's like the ultimate expression of the deconstructive mentality where it interfaces with the internet is what I finally figured out. Because on the internet, you're your avatar, right? Mm. You're not mm. really you, you're your avatar. So people go on, to, I was like, holy crap, people are going on a Tumblr. I didn't have this language yet. And in fact, this came from our friend, Mike Nana. Um, but they go on, on these social media outlets, especially Tumblr was really bad for it. And they deconstruct themselves and then put it together in some pretend way. And that sort of defines what's going on with so much of the non-scholarly side of queer theory. Mm. Um, and it was, it's just shocking. So I was really curious since you said Tumblr, I'm like, oh man, I bet he has a story. But when he no, found out I about mean, other kin and like, maybe you got a dragon, you know, I don't know. I don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> no. Well, I would say the, the thrust of what I remember from, and you know, to be completely honest, I got a Tumblr because girls I liked had Tumblrs, right? Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, 15 years old. But being exposed to the, 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 the main thing I remember from Tumblr culture with, you know, now having some years of distance from it is that it was a lot of talk about mental health. That's right. But, That's right. you know, some of which was very healthy. But there was, it was also, ironically, a kind of perverse celebration of self-harm. Mm -hmm. It was like there was a there was a sense in which talking about how much you self harmed gave you a kind of social status. That's right. But it was all couched in caring about mental health and giving mental health advice to right. tell people not to do all these things, but admitting to doing them gave you points and credibility yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in a kind of strange way. Right. And it was all married to politics as well. And the politics was a straightforward, you know, just straightforward in intersectionality. Um, and it was unhealthy in many ways. It was very insular. And I think we sort of seen that exported to the culture. I think, uh, frankly, I think a lot of people encountered all of these ideas on Tumblr first. And I, I know Jesse Single has spoken about this and, and um, Katie, who am I thinking of? Katie Herzog. Katie Herzog has, is really interesting on this topic too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, um, it's a very interesting world. And I think you're right that um, what if I were to try to put a, a map to it, I would guess that certain activists who took probably classes like gender studies classes, which were a small percentage of people, but also probably struggled with mental health issues, ended up finding community on these social media platforms. And then they were the ones who had the explanations that then legions of teenagers would connect to. Mm. Um, if I had to guess, I, I mm -hmm. seriously think that that's how a significant part of how, if you want to use the, the metaphor of the year, how the virus escaped the lab, um, on at least one level, there are other levels, like the fact that it owns most of our colleges of education. So our teachers are just teaching it, but, um, as Pete and if, can if, test, if, if yeah. And if your listeners want to learn more about that, the work of Lyle Asher is fantastic where he talks about how this is metastasized in college of education and in pre-service colleges of education where they they teach teachers this this dangerous toxic nonsense yeah so i think you're right though i think that the the social media culture my guess is that people who are getting informed in these classes 
by these, you know, fancy pants professors, uh, we're then taking those ideas and they can be very self-indulgent ideas and then feeding them to communities of, of young people who, you know, gobbled them up and then they mutated very quickly in a social media right. environment, much quicker mm-hmm. than right. academic research. Mm-hmm. And yes. then they spilled out of the academy, which is where we are now. Right. Right. So now you can see like Richard Carranza in charge of New York public schools saying that things like perfectionism and good grammar are actually manifestations of white supremacy culture. Like what, what you thought were these neutral markers being on of, time. Yeah. What, what you thought were these neutral markers of a kid doing well are actually racism in disguise. This is, you know, straight out of postmodernism and critical race theory. Right. That's that right. Kind of analysis. That's right. So, so it's already sort of in government. I don't want to be too alarmist, but it's, you know, the, 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 dire- the arrow is going in one direction only at this moment. That's right. That's right. It, it, and I am actually quite concerned about Carranza in specific. Um, yeah. We don't have to dwell on him, but he is uh, definitely, yeah. definitely it's dangerous for what, for what's going on with the, the New York city school systems and his agendas are, and that's the most important point derived directly from the critical race theory school of thought about how things work and are uh, in the world, which is, I don't think the best way to diagnose things and one of the worst ways to prescribe solutions for things that have come across as far as race goes. Mm. So I want to speak to that just, just for a minute without naming individuals. You know, one, one thing that Jim has spoken very eloquently about and Helen as well is, Aubrey Lord, you can't use the master's tools to disable the master's house. You can't use reason, scientific method, epistemic adequacy, et cetera, to overthrow systems of race and racism. And in uh, Jim and Helen's book, Cynical Theories, they have a, just a just a lovely line, a- and they say that the the problem is not the master's tools. The problem is that historically people haven't been given access to the master's house, mm-hmm. and we need to open, we need to make those things more accessible. And Socrates in the symposium throws the women and the slaves out of the room before he he begins the dialogue, and indeed that principle of not letting certain people into the into the house it's it's i think it was churchill was asked about capitalism so it's a terrible system but it's the the best worst system we have Mm -hmm. that's not true with the master's house that's not true with enlightenment values that's not true with liberalism it's truly the pinnacle of human reason rationality and science that we can use to lead us to flourishing but right now what's happening is that those ideals are being vandalized by critical race theory, by the implementation of non-scientific ideas that are untethered to reality. And again, you see this manifest throughout the society. Yeah. I actually, I remember that line. It really struck me. You know, the, the master's house actually is a good house. It, it's, it's a well-built house. The problem is we haven't been letting people in it. And, and there are people who want to just, as you say in the book, you know, reduce the house to rubble so that we can all equally live in rubble. And that's right. The yeah, that's exactly there. correct. Yeah, yeah the, the, that's where, you know, the, the phrase, uh, Audrey Lord's phrase directly was the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And so the question is, why do we want to dismantle it? And so that's where this somebody sent it to me on Twitter the other day. So I happen to recall it. It's on page 20. Um, that's where this came from. The, Helen and I had a discussion about it. And Helen actually wrote that part. I won't take credit for it. Uh, that's her phrasing. She did a very good job with. 
but it's, you know, we thought, well, no, the master's house is good historically. And even to the, to this day, there are still issues with it. We've had a problem with generating fair access to the house, but why in the world would you want to tear it down? <laughs> if if right. it, it's a good place and we haven't let everybody in properly, why would you tear it down as a result of that? Doesn't make any sense. And, and for so, what? What would be the, what would be the alternative? Well, it, we we say it is equal access to to a pile of rubble is not a worthy goal. Exactly. That's, that's Helen's sentence that I'm just so that's, struck yeah, by. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. It's and it's true. Um, yeah. The easiest equity to achieve is nothing for everybody. That's like when your when your mom, or at least I don't know, my mom got pissed off. <laughs> I was a pain, a precocious child. Um, but I don't know if your mom ever like. When you're growing up, like you, you and your brothers or sisters, or your friends or whatever, are squabbling over who's going to get however much of the cake or the pie or the dinner or the whatever it is, and your mom finally flips out and it's like nobody gets any, and it's like mm. gone, right? It's in the mm. trash or something. I think my mom lost it. We were fighting over a pie one time, and the whole thing she like just threw it out in the yard and was like, "There you go, yeah. nobody gets any." And um, I can go to the birds, I guess. And it's just like that's the easiest path to equity. Nobody gets anything just tear it all down and then everybody's equal. And that's really scary because it's really hard to build something that's good and to then find ways that are fair to divvy it up, especially when fairness is interpreted differently. If we get into kind of the moral psychology of John Haidt, we see that fairness is interpreted differently by conservatives and by uh, people he describes as liberals. Uh, They have a different concept, underlying concept of fairness. It's very difficult to determine what is fair than that's a very hard problem. So if you're trying to solve a very, very hard problem and you're just frustrated with the problem, the easy thing to do is just throw it away. And that's a, that's a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing is we've done the intellectual labor. We've already figured these things out. Jim mentioned John Rawls before. You know, Rawls has figured this out about to, to extend the pie metaphor, make it as if your enemy defines your social place. So when I was growing up, when some people I knew may have smoked marijuana. I may have heard of somebody who knew somebody who smoked marijuana. And the way that these scandalous individuals would divide their marijuana was one, one would uh, divide it and the other one would choose. And there's something intrinsically fair about that system. So we, we have really a, a long history of having thought about these things. And what we see now is that Jim's right, that we see people wanting to bring us back to the stone age, right? Mm. We see people wanting to destroy systems. We, we know that are not perfect, but it's the, we've used the most robust tools and the best thinkers. We've tried to falsify notions. We have a, an infra, a moral infrastructure that we've built around these concepts. And then we have a bunch of people who happen to have platforms or social media, and they're trying to rip down and destroy everything. And that itself is, again, rooted in what Jim was talking about is deconstruction and, and critical theory, problematizing. Yeah. There, there was another line that jumped out at me from the book that I want to talk about. That's It's you not talk- the big black butts part at the end of chapter three, is it? No, it's not. Because that, that makes Helen really embarrassed, and it's good to talk about it as often as possible. <laughs> I think you probably have to say more. When you have Helen on, you have to ask her about that. Okay. (laughs) That's a teaser for later. But, but the part I'm thinking about is you, you talk about the political principle of postmodernism. Can you summarize that for me? Yeah. So it's easier if I start actually with both, if I do both principles at once, because you have to understand the knowledge principle to understand the, the political principle. So we separate, we try to summarize themes and principles of postmodernism. So you can see consistently how, through different eras in its application, 
uh, it's consistent. It's still there, right? Because uh, a lot of philosophers like to argue that postmodernism died in our argument is no, it didn't, it changed. But to do that, you have to say, here are the core ideas, core principles, core themes. Those are mostly maintained with some modification or no modification from one stage to the next. So we, we outline these two principles of postmodernism, the knowledge principle and the political principle. And the postmodern knowledge principle is that there's no access to objective truth. Everything is, in fact, radically subjective. If we were to put that as Foucault would have, it's that to look at a truth claim as though it matters whether it's true or false in reality, as it, if it corresponds to reality, let's say, is to miss the point that the authentication of a truth claim as true or denial as false is a political process. So we should interrogate the politics that rose uh, in that circumstance rather than worry about if the thing's actually true or not. Can which I pause is, you, Jim? Yes. <clears throat> Can I pause you? I think people misunderstand what Jim said, Coleman, as meaning there's no objective reality. Right. That's not what that means. That's not what they mean. Okay, it means so they don't ahead. care about objective reality. The Rorty put it actually that reality may be out there, but the truth isn't out there. Um, the truth is a social construct that human beings exactly. are. So that's the knowledge principle, but you can already see where the political principle comes in. If we're going to interrogate that politics, the political principle is that we have to understand knowledge intrinsically as being political. It is the fruit of a political process that then needs to be interrogated. So interrogating the politics that lead to a language or knowledge system is the political principle. And it generally follows that the view was that the powerful in society, whatever that means, are the ones who get to set the stage for the discourse. They get to decide which statements are true. They are the authenticators of truth, as Foucault would put it. Uh, and therefore, we have to be very skeptical of anything that maintains the dominant view of the world, as, again, Foucault would put it, in order that we might expand the potentialities of being or the potentialities of living. Mm -hmm. And so the postmodern political principle is this radical skepticism of the politics that are believed or the power systems that are believed right. to be at the root of right. the construction of knowledge. Yeah. And the, the line that I thought was so, so clarifying and that I'm going to steal from you if you don't mind or Please. whether or not you mind yes. is that the view of, of systems of oppression, systemic racism being a, a clear and probably the most often used example, the notion, the distinction between systemic racism rather than the old fashioned individual racism that most people think they understand the meaning of what makes it systemic is that no one in the system is actually has to be a racist in order for the system to produce racist outcomes. Now, if you linger on that and actually think about it deeply, it, it's a very puzzling idea because it suggests that the criminal justice system, even if there were not a single racist policeman, judge, or prosecutor, could yield, or, or explicitly racist law, could yield a, a racist outcome. And you call this a conspiracy theory without the conspirators which I think is, is a brilliant way of characterizing it, because that's really what it is. There, there's an abstract sense that a system is conspiring to produce the outcomes that we see today. But the burden is never on the person proposing this conspiracy theory to say exactly who is perpetrating it, to locate the racial bias. That's sort of the notion of systemic racism, at least you know how it's often construed. Right, right. Yeah. So I actually, I talked about this a little bit on, on Joe Rogan's podcast, and I wrote an essay on new discourses about it. The way that this is, it, it helps to step out of something so uncomfortable as racism 
to, and as far as discussion can go, to really get a sense of how not helpful this systemic, this jump to systemic thinking is. Um, I mean, we could talk very concretely and say in the usual or the older view or the, the proper view of racism, racism is an action or a belief uh, or an intention, which means you can intervene with an individual or an institution and get them to change those things and do differently. Whereas if it's a system, it's very vague and there's nowhere to stick the finger. But this is this analogy I thought of when I was out walking with my wife one, one night on the sidewalk by the road and a car whizzed by, you know, a little faster than it should enough to catch my attention. Right. And suddenly it hit me. And I said, imagine that you and I were walking, I was talking to my wife, um, down this street right now, and that car had just roared by. And for whatever bad coincidence set of reasons, there is, there's, say, a broken bottle laying on the sidewalk, the end of it sticking up at an awkward angle, and I step on it and I trip. And my shoulder runs into you and knocks you into the street, and you get hit by the car and you die. Okay. Who's to blame for this? Where's the fault? And, you know, we could start trying to look at different contributors to the situation. And one of them, of course, would be whoever threw the bottle and broke it on the the sidewalk. One would be the person speeding up the road in the car. One would be that I hadn't taken enough care in my own walking. One could be that we chose to walk at the time that we did. Now we're starting to get very vague or that we chose to, there's a cultural bias toward walking during evening hours, which really isn't. Nobody wants to walk in the bright sun because it'll burn you. And nobody wants to walk in the, the dark because it's dark. <laughs> but, you know, very few people, I know you young, young people like to go out in the, at the night. But uh, when you get older, you're like, eh, I'm going to bed. Um, so, you know, there's all these different things we could say. But we could go with the systemic thinking and we could just focus on the bottle in the car. And we could say, well, there's an entire culture that believes in drinking, that, that derives value from drinking, that benefits right. from the fact that people buy and consume alcohol. There's an entire economy built around this. And this led to that bottle being broken on the sidewalk through whatever vague system of actions that led to somebody drinking and throwing a liquor bottle, say, out their car window and breaking on the sidewalk, however it happened. But if there was no desire by anybody, if nobody desired to drink, nobody would be drinking liquor. Nobody would, there would be no liquor. There'd be no reason to drink. There'd be no bottle on the sidewalk. Or if we lived in a society where nobody wanted to drive cars, that car could, there would be no cars. Nobody would have been ripping up the road in the car at that particular time. And so in a sense, because we are all contributing to an economy where there's liquor and and, and a value system where people drink and enjoy themselves that way, and we all participate in an economy in a world that's structured around driving cars, everybody's complicit in that death because we all support that we all buy cars. We all think driving cars is normal. We all think drinking is is a thing that happens. We all understand. We apologize for the young person who threw the bottle. Oh, they're young and stupid. They just got wild a little bit. You know, it's unfortunate. Youth is wasted on the young, blah, blah, blah. You know, we have all these, these excuses to justify that behavior and excuse that behavior. But it's this entire system, a whole culture that supports liquor and driving and all these things that led to this death. And you can see immediately when you take it into a situation like that, just how poor a way to analyze a problem that is. And um, maybe that's a bad analogy, but I haven't figured out why it's a bad analogy yet. But this is this is the nature of this systemic thinking when you read books like Being White, Being Good by, by um, 
Barbara Applebaum, and I may have got that backwards. It might be being good, being white. I get it mixed up sometimes. Uh, but either way, it's 2010 book. You can go read it. Barbara Applebaum is correct. And she talks about white complicity. That's the point. Right. That's actually the argument she gives for why all white people are always complicit in racism is that they benefit from the system. Just like we all benefit from a society that there's where there's cars or where that we can enjoy uh, the freedom to have liquor and, and have parties or whatever whatever it is. And there's an economy built around that. We all benefit from the capitalist right. economy. This is a any, very any, bad any analysis time. of moral yeah. responsibility. Yeah, and anytime someone says, well, wait a second, or has a questioning, then, then another phrase is used, privilege preserving epistemic pushback. So there's a, an infrastructure in place to a very well thought out infrastructure to keep these ideas in play. Right. So when we now switch back to, to racism, you start to see things like with, with Ibram Kendi. Right. Kendi's very, um, people aren't catching on to, to Dr. Kendi. Um, he very specifically says that the reason, he always talks about policy, right? We're going to talk about racist policy. And how do you know if a policy is racist? Well, if I have outcomes that are different for certain races rather than others, and we can get all ugly and say which races count and which races don't and start raising questions about what's going on with that analysis, but we don't need to. He even openly says that he's using the word policy in place of the word systemic, the way that it's usually used, because he finds that people get confused by systemic and they understand policy. So he still means the the same thing. Example of housing, yeah. But he gives a bunch of examples, but he very explicitly even says that if we find that anti-discrimination, say like uh, the Civil Rights Act, anti-discrimination produces inequitable outcomes, and that's racist policy and needs to be changed. But if discrimination would produce more equitable, uh, obviously selective discrimination would produce more equitable outcomes, and that would be uh, anti-racist policy. And so you see what happens when you zoom out. I don't even think it's zooming out. I think it's looking at the problem through the wrong end of the telescope. Um, It's like you're looking and you turn the thing around and it's all backwards and you can't see anything and it's all blurry and small. Um, And we look at the problem of racism, say, or sexism or patriarchy or misogyny or, you, you know, homophobia, heteronormativity, you name it. We look at these problems in a way where all we do is say, is there is or is there ain't different outcomes, you know, it's kind of a very hillbilly sort of way to look at it, you can't solve the problem. You're not looking at causes. You're not looking at potential solutions. And it's a, again, I just said it earlier, it's very bad at describing it's the problems it talks about. It's just not a helpful way. And then it offers horrendous proposals to fix the problem, like Kendi wanting to set up a constitutional amendment and then three letter government agency that basically scrutinizes all policy and changes everything that doesn't have, uh, as he calls them, equitable outcomes. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about how to have conversations with people about all these topics, you know, the people with whom you disagree. This is one of the most common questions I get from listeners to this podcast is people are trying to talk about the news or about the ideas that survive the news cycle with their friends and their family members. And they're afraid of losing friendships, of breaking relationships. And I have enormous empathy for them. And they often ask, you know, my advice. And, and of course, and of course, Coleman, your advice is to read James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian's book, How to Have Impossible Conversations. That's what you say, right? That is invariably what I say verbatim. Excellent. That's the right answer. So I do want to, I, I want to talk about that book. It's called How to Have Impossible Conversations. And it, it strikes me that, James, your book from, I think, five years ago which is called Everyone's Wrong About God. It's 
kind of similar thematically because it, it deals with what atheists and believers, you know, how they're miscommunicating when they use the word God differently. So it strikes me that it's, you, you, you guys have kind of, kind of been dealing with this problem for a while. So I'll ask the annoying question. Can you summarize your book for me <laughs> in a few paragraphs? It's all you, Jim, Peter. Do you want to take that or me? Me? No. Okay. No, it's all you. Okay. How to Have Impossible Conversations breaks down 36 techniques that anybody can use to speak across gulfs, moral gulfs, epistemological gulfs. They can speak to fanatics. They can speak to benign believers about things that, that they're uncomfortable with. It's, a, it's really a, a book of self-empowerment. It empowers people and gives them the tools to have conversations that they wouldn't ordinarily be able to have. That's the one sentence thing, but a little deeper on that, it, it draws from multiple domains of thought, hostage negotiation, cult exiting, applied epistemology, everything you, you could think of. Um, and we took the best available literature and we summarized those into individual discrete techniques that, that people can use. Right. Yeah. So what you were speaking to just a second ago, Coleman, um, the introductory parts of the book, but the book is, is, is sequentially written so that there are kind of easier beginner level techniques going up through intermediate expert and, and advanced and master and all of this. And uh, so the techniques get more difficult in some sense or another as you go, not necessarily difficult to apply, but it's often difficult to um, apply the, the principles within yourself, like anger management is one of the techniques we right. talk about further on in the book. It's very difficult sometimes when you talk about touchy issues or emotional issues, not to become upset or to get overwhelmed with emotion. But the beginning part of the book talks about, you know, much more basic techniques, listening to one another, learning, establishing rapport, setting goals for the conversation and making sure you keep coming back to those to avoid getting off in um, unproductive or damaging tangents to understand the dynamics of conversation. Uh, But the end of the book is where this talking past each other and being able to not being able to understand one another really comes up. Um, and that's where I drew off of my my readings of moral psychology uh, and, and it talked about and everybody's wrong about God uh, a few years ago. So that part is very important if we want to try to talk with people about social justice or woke issues, if we want to call them that, um, because not only are they speaking a different literal language in the sense that they right. use the words in English differently. But they are also coming at those words. Everything's morally imbued. There's always like hidden connotation or extra meaning to the words uh, that that makes it very difficult for people to understand. So you have to be able to get on each other's same page with regard to values in order to have a conversation about these issues. And we use Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind. We've used the really cutting edge techniques and ideas in psychology and the literature to spell out to people, okay, and there are templates in the book. Someone says this, you says that, you say this, someone says this, um, and it draws from my first book. How to? Uh, what's my first book? Uh, manual for Creating Atheists. Yeah, that's right. I uh, manual for Creating <laughs> Atheists. Remember that? A manual. See, when that happens at twenty, you think it's brain bro. When it happens at fifty-four, you think, oh my god, I'm getting hit Alzheimer's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so a manual for creating atheists, and one of the things that that, that did was it, it drew from conversations with, with prison inmates and conversations with the faithful to help people be more reflective about the the means that they use to come to knowledge. But really, I think to, to relate that to cynical theories, what we see happening now is, and again, this comes from 
Judith Butler's what is it the parodies of disruption or something like politics of parody yeah politics of parody thank you we want to always disrupt we want to um there is no and this is what I was thinking Coleman when you said that you had a professor and that there wasn't a lot of questions that's because in general dialogue isn't valued in these places and as much as they you know Paulo Freire has this book he was a Brazilian educator pedagogy of the oppressed, as much as these folks draw from that, the idea that they want to develop a critical consciousness, and this is talked about in in cynical theories as well, they don't really value discourse, dialogue, debate. And when you don't value that, you don't see that modeled for you in a classroom. And so the consequence of that is when you hear an idea that runs counter to your own beliefs, you might think it is odious, you might other the, the people, but you don't know how to engage the idea. So what Jim and I wanted to do in How to Have Possible Conversations is we wanted to give people a tool, and we don't think it's the solution to anything, but we wanted to give them a tool to empower them to speak across divides. So when you see a protester, when you see or anyone, you okay, the first order of business is to figure out what these people believe. You know, when we, we sketch it out, okay, why do they believe this? And it's basically very gentle. It's asking questions and it's seeing if you can, it's drawing from Socratic techniques, the Socratic method. It's seeing, it's asking them to ask themselves if the beliefs that they hold can stand up to scrutiny. So you're not telling anybody anything. Yeah. So I think this is really interesting. Um, I've definitely, you know, I've had conversations that just go completely horribly where I feel like. I did everything right. And then I, I feel like I, there's been conversations that went all right, where I was, you know, a bit more of a dick than I would want to be in, in retrospect. You know, I, I've had the full, I mean, so much of it comes down to just the two people and the, the moods that you're in. Um, but there are definitely ways of improving your likelihood of having conversations not go horribly. And some of your recommendations, I think, will be maybe counterintuitive to people. So one of your recommendations is to not cite facts unless it's uh, until it's a last resort. So can you talk about why that makes sense as a a way to improve conversations? I mean, sure. I was just going to give you an example. What happened with the shooter in Kenosha the other night? You don't have to actually answer. You just have to get uncomfortable. Well, what I what I know is that there are there are two narratives that different ones of my friends will are completely probably you know convinced are right. That's right. That share the, that overlap like Venn diagrams, but are totally different at their core. Exactly. So one of the reasons you don't want to bring facts in is because um, when you actually have people, most people don't think in very rigorous factual based ways, they tend to think in terms of um, what those facts imply, what stories those facts tell, how they fit into broader narratives of meaning, how they fit into broader narratives of consequence. And so what you find in practice is that each side has its own facts. And so you present facts and they say, you have the facts wrong. These are the facts. And then your um, shotguns across the table, as they say. And so they have their facts, you have your facts. And then it's like, even I was on, when I was on Joe Rogan and we started talking about the Michael Brown shooting in 2014 and I presented what I thought was a fact. And he's like, yeah, but is that really what happened? And it's like, well, now I don't know. Crap. <laughs> you know, yeah. and so now it's just nobody's moved the ball anywhere at all. Instead, yeah. what what tends to produce effect is to try to find ways to better understand each other, where you're coming from, and the values underlying the discussion so that you can match one another in those regards. 
And right. in that kind of a space, you actually can start to bring out facts and you can start to ask questions like which facts are relevant to having formed your belief on this. And you don't have to then challenge that. It's just a matter of getting them to kind of list the facts that they think are relevant so that you can better and, understand and, their beliefs. And, and where to they came piggyback from. off of that, you shouldn't expect reciprocity. Right, right, right. right. You shouldn't expect that they grant you the same courtesies. Um, the, the bottom line, so in the discussions about faith and religion from my writings and first book, et cetera, and, and the app Atheist that we did, this is an incredibly counterintuitive idea. You're correct. And it's the one idea I think that's run throughout all of my work that it's almost impossible, if not impossible, to get people to do. Because everybody just thinks, oh, if someone just had one fact, if they just had one piece of information, that changed their mind. But the moment that you get in that mindset, <clears throat> as we talk in the book, you're delivering a message. And the moment that you're delivering a message, you're no longer having a conversation. So you've gone out of conversation space, and then any opportunity you had to help them be more reflective is, is increasingly vanishing. Yeah, I guess the context in which your advice makes sense is that you distinguish between a conversation and a debate. And you know, frequently, the moment we talk about politics, even with a friend, we're debating without realizing it. Like there's a there's a part of you that is instantly concerned with saving face, with not being made to contradict yourself, with appearing smarter and you know better informed, and all of this just you know you just have this mode you switch into. And I your book it's basically advice about how to not get into that mode that you're almost inevitably going to want to get into when you talk about anything that feels important to you. So that's why some of the advice I think is going to feel counterintuitive to people. But I do think a lot of it is good advice if, you, if you're with people that you deeply disagree with about stuff, but you want to maintain those relationships because, you know, it's, it, you can't just, you know, if you lose half your friends over politics, you know, it, it's actually harder to make new great friends you know, than, than it might seem. You know? Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting to me. I think yeah. that's a manifestation of the sickness of our age. I really do. <clears throat> when I was a kid, my parents had friends from all different political communities and commitments. And Jim has often said to me, he thinks one of the most, if not the most important thing in that book is let friends be wrong. Mm. And I'm always struck by, and, and I have lost three very, very close friends now because of the stances that I've taken, two, two have been directly over the grievance studies affair, and mm. one has been directly over positions that I've taken on issues in the last subsequent to that. And those were hard for me. And I, I, um, I understand that there are some things that are just deal breakers. Like I got that. And we all have to make our own, make up our own mind as to what those deal breakers are. Like I can't be friends with someone if they believe this. <clears throat> someone just said to me if they, they're a Trump supporter. Okay, everybody has to make up their own mind for what that is. But as a general rule, I think we're only made better by having friends who have different opinions. And if your friends only have the same political opinions as you, I would suggest getting a, an additional group of friends. Yeah, um, a really good piece of advice that you touched on, Coleman, but there's an old saying for it is that you can't make old friends. Um, and it would when. You know, I don't know. I was probably about your age, not to play that, you know, old wise guy thing. Pete's here, so we can't do it anyway. I was going to say, um, I'm just going to do that to you, Jim. Yeah, well, it's true, though. You can't make old friends. And when it really sinks in for you, like the first time in your life that that idea really hits you, you're like, oh, crap. 
friends that you've had, say, from childhood, friends that you've maybe had since college. I know that's newer for you, Coleman, but for me, it's over 20 years ago now. And for Pete, I think it's close to a thousand. Um, <laughs> it's a... Uh, you, you you can't make up for that. I talk about it with my wife a lot is that, you know, she and I have been, been together for 16 years. And so if something terrible were to happen and, and she were to die or we got some massive stupid fight and we were to get divorced, I could not possibly in 16 years, I might have somebody who I've been with for 16 years again, but I won't have somebody I've been with for 32. And you can't make old friends as a very profound thing. And so it's really tragic when you start to see belief sets, um, canceling out friendships. And so letting friends be wrong and, and trying to maintain that rapport and uh, fearing ideological movements, genuinely fearing ideological movements that drive people to want to split from their, their valued relationships is really, and, and mindsets even, like the I'm just going to push the unfollow right. button is a mindset. Right. Defriend on and, Facebook, you know, and, and you want to you know move away from that. Yeah, you know, it's amazing to me that I find, I wouldn't say unique to this cultural moment, but almost enshrined in this cultural moment is the lack of kindness that I see on the part of many social justice advocates. They're just, these are just not kind people. Well, and kindness doesn't play a role in your movement. I, I suggest you may want to reflect on the movement. I mean, I it's also... I would amend that to say that they're very kind within a circle of people that are nominated for that. Privilege. Yes, that, that's right. That's and right. Very parochial not in the outside of that circle. Yeah, parochial altruism is what they call that in the literature. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I've had a very, Peter and I both have had a, a very bizarre life, and I'm sure you have now, Coleman, in the past year or so, but especially the last maybe six months or four months. And there's been a lot of uh, crossing of the streams, as you might say, you know, Peter and I are now, Peter writes a book, a manual for creating atheists as a whole, like, Christian, evangelical Christian, like war waged on him where they're writing books about how he's a lunatic and all of this, literally. Uh, <laughs> and then now we're, we're friends and, and speak frequently with and spend free time frequently with, with profoundly significant members of the Southern Baptist Convention um, and, and other religious groups. And, you know, there's this new uh, friends with conservatives, I'm friends with liberals, I'm friends with progressives, I'm friends across, you know, the spectrum, except the woke don't like me very much. And what I find is, and they talk about this in the, in the social justice literature as well, is that there is a thing in the social justice literature referred to as relationship allyship, a form of allyship born in having a friendly relationship. So what I found is when I talk with my friends, say, that are religious, because we're friends, they're much more lo- willing to listen to my perspective, to consider where I've come from. Exactly. And when I was antagonistic with them uh, as an atheist. In fact, I'm more likely to move the needle now, as a, if I were an atheist activist trying to move the needle, which I have no interest in doing, really, um, by having friends in there who want to, in religious circles who want to listen to me, who want to understand my perspective as clearly as they can, rather than us just call each other names and fight. Right. And that's, a, that's an, an old idea in religious literature. It's come from a, a branch called relationship evangelism. Right. So, and I will point out that relationship allyship is deeply problematized. It's considered the worst right. form of allyship and a not not a true form of allyship. It's not not the way you're supposed to do it because it required you to have a personal relationship to change your mind. So you changed your mind for um, impure idea, or impure reasons. Um, you should have just known better. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. And um, hopefully have you back another time. Right Thanks, on. Colin. Thanks. Appreciate it. Right on.